Orangeism in Sandy Row dates back almost as far as Orangeism itself. Within a year of the Battle of the Diamond and the formation of the Orange Order in 1795, there's evidence that an Orange Lodge has existed in Sandy Row. A previous episode of the podcast on the 19th century riots in Sandy Row covered the development of the area into a Protestant, Unionist and Orange district. I mentioned previously how the Evangelical Protestant Revival was followed by the erection of many churches across the town. And it was in this same period that Orange Halls began to sprout up too. At a meeting in the Ulster Hall, to protest against the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland, the Reverend Dr Thomas Drew announced that a new Orange Hall was to be built in Sandy Row. It would be the first purpose-built Orange Hall in Belfast, and a fourth Orange Hall for the town. Previous Orange meetings had been taking place at a site in College Street, for example, in the centre of Belfast, as well as at Curtis Street and in Ballymacarrett. It's said that the hall was built on land that King William III used as a resting place for his troops during their march from Carrickfergus to the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. William landed at Carrickfergus on the 14th of June 1690 with a fleet of around 300 vessels. Having mustered an army of 36,000 men, this was the largest troop that Ireland had ever seen and is ever likely to see. A witness to the landing observed, The lock between this and Carrickfergus seems like a wood. There being no less than 700 sail of ships in it, I cannot think of any army in Christendom half the like. After landing at Carrickfergus, the Williamite army proceeded south to confront James, who by this stage was perched on a strategic position at the River Boyne. William's journey took him through Belfast, where he stayed at the old Belfast Castle before leaving again on the 17th of June 1690. It is reported that he stopped briefly at the site of the modern King William's Park at the junction of the Lisburn Road and University Road very near to Sandy Row, before making another stop at Malone due to a rainstorm. So we can definitely place King William in the vicinity of Sandy Row in this period. A bronze tablet at the entrance of the park states that, quote, King William III and his army passed this way from Carrickfergus on his march to the Battle of the Boyne. The park is very much the baby of Belfast's parks, probably the smallest in the city, possibly even the smallest in Ireland, and for many years a retreat for the senior citizens of the Sandy Row area. So small and inconspicuous, it is an oasis of calm amid the bustling traffic of the roads which surround it. 
Two members of Eldon LOL reached an agreement with Belfast Corporation in 1950 in which they would pay one shilling per year to maintain the bronze tablet. Whether this arrangement is still in place, I'm not too sure, but judging by the current condition of the tablet, it would appear not. In 1963, there was controversy during renovation works carried out at the park when a sign bearing the name of the park was painted over by the council. The reason, said council officials, is that despite being commonly known as King William Park, the park had never been officially named. As soon as it was discovered to be an unofficial term, the name was erased from the existing sign. Ernest O'Reilly of Clonlee Drive penned an ode to the park in the early 1980s. The buses come, the buses go, and the people in their hundreds pass. The little park a constant flow, they note not leafy trees and grass. But pigeons come to feast and feed, and sparrows find some morsels too. While senior citizens take heed, Resting contented as they view the birds and flowers that grace the park amid the city's noise and rush, from early morn till almost dark, when nightfall reigns with gracious hush. The park and the Orange Hall are not the only connections to King William III. Sandy Row folklore suggests that a number of Williamite soldiers were actually buried at a site known locally as Kelly's Hole a burial ground that no longer exists, bar the pillar of its former main entrance gates on the Donegal Road, opposite the former Belfast Workhouse site, or as we know it today, Belfast City Hospital. Again, this is difficult to prove without much more digging on the matter, especially since the area has been redeveloped. But the fact that there is a Williamite presence in the Shankill graveyard suggests that the story might not be so far-fetched. In June 1868 then, advertisements were published in local newspapers inviting contractors to tender for work to erect the new Orange Hall for Sandy Row. Within a month, and at 4pm on Monday the 6th of July, the foundation stone for the hall was laid, as witnessed by large crowds, reportedly 10,000 or more, while loyal flags and banners festooned the district. The honour of laying the foundation stone fell to William Johnson of Ballyclebeg, a man who Professor Roy Foster has described as, quote, the most celebrated orange firebrand of his day, a founder of newspapers, member of parliament and scourge of popery. In the 1860s, Johnson emerged as the foremost campaigner against the controversial Party Processions Act of 1850. The act had been passed by Lord John Russell's Liberal administration in response to the events at Dolly's Bray on the 12th of July the previous year. The intention of this legislation was to ban orange parades. In 1867, William Johnson decided to challenge the legislation by organising and leading a large demonstration from Newtonards to Bangor in clear defiance of the act. The Conservative government insisted on prosecuting Johnson for defying the law. Determined on martyrdom and refusing to be bound over to keep the peace, Johnson was sentenced to two months imprisonment in Downpatrick Jail in February 1868, and he was released just in time then to be invited to Sandy Row to lay the Orange Hall's foundation stone. Johnson arrived in Belfast by train and took residency in the Imperial Hotel. 
before being brought to Sandy Row in a carriage drawn by four white horses and led by the Belfast Conservative Band, who were reportedly playing a tune called See the Conquering Hero Comes. Chairman for the proceedings was Stuart Blacker, Grand Master of Derry, who began by congratulating the residents of Sandy Row for erecting an orange hall there. He said, quote, There is nothing which renders a community so orderly and peaceable as having a place where they could utter sentiments and not be afraid of any man. He went on to say that he would be glad if the whole of Ireland were one large sandy row because then they would have, quote, no fenians or mischievous agitators. The Reverend Dr. Drew's remarks, on the other hand, focused on the establishment of the Protestant church in the area before finishing with the following poetic lines. And Sandy Row, heart, purse and hand, will stand for queen and fatherland. The people and the church we know will guarded be in Sandy Row. O Sandy Row, O Sandy Row, my heart is there wherever I go. The rivers they shall cease to flow. Ever I forget thee, Sandy Rowe. William Johnson then stepped forward to deafening cheers from the 10,000 strong crowd in attendance. When he spoke though, his tone was less hostile to that of Stuart Blacker, saying that, quote, While they loved the Orange Brotherhood, they also loved their Roman Catholic countrymen. To which there were cries of hear, hear. He said that it was a grand thing to be in any way instrumental in erecting an orange hall, and he felt that the hall would be a shrine to the Bible and the ark of God's Protestant truth, a forerunner for peace pointing gloriously to the future. The Protestant religion, said Johnson, would be maintained within its walls. Their Protestant rights would forever maintain, and the Protestant cause they would never surrender. The Reverend Galt then called upon those present to open up a clear pathway to the spot where the foundation stone was to be laid. Then, having arrived at the spot, William Johnson proclaimed, Except the Lord build the house, they labour in vain that build it. The stone was then placed in the excavated ground along with a number of coins and other items. These coins then became the focus of claim and counterclaim after the ceremony. The Northern Whig newspaper had reported that miscreants had somehow removed the foundation stone and stolen the coins. However, a few days later, in the correspondence section of the same newspaper, the pen name Sandy Roman wrote, Sir, allow me to correct a misstatement which appeared in your columns on Tuesday in regard to the foundation stone of the Sandy Row Orange Hall being removed and the coins extracted. This, I beg to say, is without the slightest foundation, and I am sure that there is not an inhabitant of Sandy Row who would be found guilty of such a mean action. Belfast Conservative Band played a rendition of the Boyne Water. While laying the stone, Johnson said, 
I, invoking the blessing of God, here lay the foundation stone of this orange hall, trusting that it may tend to promote the cause of truth and prosperity and the interests of the loyal brotherhood, associated in honour of King William III, whose name it now bears. The benediction was then pronounced and the ceremony was brought to a close, at which point Johnson was presented with a very handsome silver trial bearing the following inscription. Presented to William Johnson Esquire of Ballyclebeg House by the members of the Sandy Row Orange Lodges on this occasion of his laying the foundation stone of their new Orange Hall, Sandy Row, on Saturday the 4th of July, 1868. At the conclusion of the ceremony, the Conservative band paraded the streets of Sandy Row for some time. A body of police then formed a line across the Boyne Bridge to prevent the band from crossing over into Durham Street, which apparently they had no intentions to do. However, the day otherwise drew to a peaceful close. Work on the hall could now begin, and donations were encouraged by local lodges from the area. Among the donors was Lord Roden, who gave £20 more than any other individual, and also Sir Charles Lanyon, the great 19th century architect whose designs include Queen's University, the Customs House and Crumlin Road Jail. Lanyon gave £5 towards the Sandy Row Orange Hall project. Despite the impressive list of donors, however, the fund was still £250 short by December of 1868. Building work was thrown into further chaos when one of the partners who was awarded the contract was declared bankrupt after having been paid £146 towards the work. This meant that Ligonil Orange Hall managed to lay its foundation stone, construct a building and officially open the hall while Sandy Row Orange Hall was still facing its difficulties. Nevertheless, Building work was eventually finished on the 1st of June 1869 and the hall was earmarked for an official opening on the 24th of September that year with a lecture by the Reverend Henry Henderson. It was also advised that a further collection would take place at the opening event in order to raise outstanding funds associated with the erection of the hall which in the end would cost around £430. The hall was well decorated for the opening occasion and there were 10 lodges in attendance. Henderson entered the hall at around 8pm to rapturous applause and when asked to speak began by saying the foundational stone of this commodious and splendid hall was auspiciously laid in the presence of thousands of our loyal brethren by the honourable member for this town, Mr Johnson of Ballykilbeg, and I congratulate you sir that you have been privileged to declare tonight that the building has been completed and that it is now set apart for the purposes for which it was originally dedicated. These orange halls, which are now, I am glad to say, being extensively erected across Ulster, are designed for the mental and moral improvement of the members of the loyal institution, to which the crowd responded with rapturous applause. Henderson finished his lecture by imploring those there to donate generously to the hall's construction fund in the hope that £100 could be raised. In the end, only £9 was raised and the outstanding debt remained somewhere between £200 and £300. 
As Belfast's population soared in the second half of the 19th century, there was an influx of members to Orange Lodges in places like Sandy Row. By 1878, the Grand Lodge of Ireland had instructed all lodges meeting in Belfast to join the County Grand Orange Lodge. By now, there were 12 lodges meeting in Sandy Row, and with the benefit of a brand new Orange Hall, Sandy Row's number 5 district was born. By the early part of the 20th century, there were 24 lodges in Sandy Rose No. 5 district, not to mention the development of the Royal Black Institution in the area. Consequently, the relatively new Orange Hall had already been outgrown. The hall required expansion and as such was enlarged in 1910. Building work at a cost of £3,000 this time was carried out between 1909 and 1910 based on a design by Robert Sharp Hill and Eric Riddell Kennedy who, as a partnership, had designed several buildings in Belfast between 1908 and 1910. The new building was spread over four floors and consisted of seven lodge rooms including one for the Royal Black Institution, a function room, a committee room and even a caretaker's flat. George Chittick has written that from 1910 onwards, Sandy Row Orange Hall became akin to a community centre for the people of the area. The hall hosted dances, concerts, beetle drives, weddings, anniversary, as well as some of the more mundane events and meetings. One very important meeting that took place there each year was the AGM of the mill workers team from Sandy Row, Linfield Football Club. Indeed, the men who founded Linfield FC in 1886 were prominent members of Number 5 District. On the club's centenary year in 1986, it was noted in the annual 12th booklet that to be a member of LOL 821 or LOL 890, you had to be a supporter of the Blues. And it was also said to be a reason why LOL 890 chose to wear blue collarettes as opposed to orange ones. In February 1912 then, an historic occasion occurred at the Sandy Row Hall. But first of all, we must take a step back in order to help us understand. At the December 1911 meeting of the Grand Lodge of Ireland held in Dublin, permission was given to Mrs R. H. Johnston of Bon Boy in County Cavan to revive the Women's Orange Association. Johnston had been a member of the old association which was dormant from around 1887. Johnston held her first meeting in the Fowler Memorial Hall, Rutland Square in Dublin on the 13th of February 1912 during which she issued three warrants. Number one, going to Sandy Row. Number two, going to Ballymacarrat. And number three, going to Kingstown, Dublin. And so, on Thursday the 15th of February 1912, the very first Women's Orange Lodge in Ireland was established in Sandy Row Orange Hall. It was known as Ireland's Ladies LOL Number One. Today, it is known as Ladies Orange District Number One. Over 50 women joined this new Ladies Lodge. The first worshipful mistress was a woman called Annie Bridget, and on her headstone in Belfast City Cemetery, it records that she was the first worshipful mistress of Ireland's First Ladies LOL Number One. Annie was the wife of William Bridget, and together they lived at 98 Great Victoria Street. The Bridgets were a well-known family in Orange Circles. 
William, for example, was a designer and painter of orange banners commissioned by orange lodges across Ireland, Britain, Canada and the USA. William himself was a senior orange man who held a number of prominent positions including Deputy Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Ireland as well as being a trustee of Sandy Row Orange Hall itself. Annie Bridget had nine children, seven daughters and two sons. Many of the daughters though carried on the tradition of the Orange Women's Association. Like Margaret for example who was recorded as a founder member of the same lodge as her mother's and even served on the committee. Then, in 1918, Margaret Drennan, as she was now, helped form the South Belfast Women's LOL 17, who were formed at a special meeting in Sandy Row Orange Hall on the 30th of April 1918. A number of the Bridget sisters were in attendance at that meeting. The officers to be installed were Margaret Drennan as Worshipful Mistress, Sister Macaulay as Deputy Mistress and Sister McGuinness as Secretary. In 1950, the Hall Management Committee concluded that the Orange Hall would need to be expanded once again to meet the growing demand for use of around 52 lodges, 34 black preceptories, 17 junior lodges, 6 apprentice boys clubs and 10 ladies lodges. Consequently, land at the rear of the building was acquired and plans for an extension were drawn up. Throughout the decade, there were many fundraising schemes from weekly dances to raffles, fun fairs and even a high-profile football-friendly game at Windsor Park between Linfield and Glasgow Rangers. Rangers brought over a strong team for the game and were taken on a visit to Parliament buildings and also at Newcastle County Down during the day. They went on to win what was described as a dull occasion and, quote, the worst Rangers team seen in Belfast by one newspaper. The score was 2-0 with goals coming from Waddell and Hubbard. According to newspaper reports, many of the 25,000 crowd had decided to leave long before the end of the game. However, regardless of the quality of play on the pitch, 25,000 spectators meant that a hefty sum of money had been raised towards the hall. Despite all those efforts, the fundraising fell short and the Brethren of No. 5 District were each levied £2 to cover the remaining costs. By 1959, the extension though was complete and declared open on the 26th of September by Sister Elsie Armstrong. It included a new boardroom, general office and two large lodge rooms, as well as toilet and kitchen facilities. The 1960s then witnessed the era of the famous orange arch for Sandy Row. The arch was a tradition that went back many years on the row, though none had been erected since 1939 and the beginning of the Second World War. And so, in October 1963, in Sandy Row Orange Hall, a small committee was formed to revive the tradition of the orange arch in the area, and they wasted no time in having one constructed by July 1964. This magnificent arch spanned almost 40 feet and cost £1,000 to build. A further four orange arches were erected along Sandy Row in the years that followed. Possibly the arch's finest hour was in 1966 when Sandy Row witnessed the presence of another monarch. 
In the same way that King William III had passed through Sandy Row on his way to the Battle of the Boyne, Queen Elizabeth II was cheered by crowds as she passed through five orange arches on her way to the Balmoral Showgrounds, where she would inspect veterans of the First World War. Upon discovering the proposed route for the royal procession at the 11th hour, the chairman of the Arch Committee made contact with the Northern Ireland Prime Minister, Terence O'Neill, and his efforts were rewarded as the Queen passed under the famous arch at Sandy Row Orange Hall, possibly the last monarch ever to pass under such an arch. Today, Sandy Row Orange Hall is not the hive of activity that it once was in previous generations. However, a dedicated group of volunteers have ensured that the hall's historical importance is not overlooked. Volunteers from the Sandy Row Development Association gave the hall a major facelift from 2015 onwards, including a refurbishment of the hall's War Memorial Room, which I'll look to cover in an upcoming episode. More recently, in 2018, Investment from Belfast City Council ensured that preservation works could be carried out on the hall. This investment, as well as financial contributions from the Sandy Row Orange Hall Development Fund, will help draw attention to Sandy Row's proud orange heritage. Thank you as ever for taking the time to listen to the Historical Belfast podcast. This Sandy Row mini-series is brought to you in collaboration with Belfast South Community Resources and also with the support of the South Belfast Urban Village Initiative. If you're enjoying the episodes, please remember to give the podcast a rating on whatever platform you're listening and also to share the episodes on your social media.